Well, we are in part three of our series on the book of First Peter, and we have named it Scattered. And we are living in strange times right now. I know you know that just as well as I do. Uh, we're under the restrictions of a worldwide viral pandemic. And our new normal, uh, it feels pretty inconvenient and quite invasive, to tell you the truth. And the rules are many. Don't gather, no crowds, stand apart, no touching, no handshakes, no hugs, and definitely no laying on of hands. And um, they've told us to stay at home and self-quarantine and self-isolated, and those are very difficult restrictions for all of us to manage, but especially when we're apostolic believers because we draw such strength from each other through our interactions especially when we're part of a wonderful thing like a local church family. And so right now, like these people 2,000 years ago, we feel very separated. We even feel scattered. And so that brings us to this 2,000-year-old letter written by the day of Pentecost preacher himself, the Apostle Peter. And we've taken the title for our series from his very first verse where he says, Peter an apostle of Jesus Christ to the saints that are scattered. And then he names five provinces throughout the territory, the province of Asia Minor. And uh, these people are very distant. They're a long way apart. They are scattered. They have no opportunity for a close fellowship like we normally enjoy today. Uh, even with no social distancing, um, we have, uh, or, or rather, even with social distancing, we are still probably closer than they were 2,000 years ago. Think about this. They lived in a world with no electricity, uh, no modern travel, no social media. So even with our social distancing, we're probably in more connection and contact than they were. These people, these believers scattered throughout Asia Minor, that huge territory, were basically only connected by letters like this one that made their way, passed from group to group and read to the saints, bringing words of encouragement. Now, we're in part three tonight, and Peter ended chapter one by telling them that if they had true hope and true holiness one of the results in their lives would be an unfeigned love of the brethren. You know, that unfeigned love, that sincere, real love, it can be felt across social media and phone calls. And even when we are distant uh, socially, it can still be felt. And that's what they experienced. And now Peter opens chapter 2 by saying something similar to what he had probably heard Jesus say dozens or even hundreds of times. Jesus had said these words, Verily I say unto you, except ye be converted and become as little children, you shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now every parent in our church family, every person who's ever had children, you know how this works. Even when kids have problems and disagreements and tensions with each other, they are very quick to forgive and very quick to restore the relationship. It can be frustrating as a parent. They're yelling and screaming and hitting each other and you separate them and then you turn around two minutes later and they're hugging each other and playing together. That's children. Sometimes it happens almost instantly. The forgiveness is offered almost just as soon as the hurt is inflicted. And Peter says to these believers, you need to be like that. This is what Jesus taught us. You need to be like little children in your faith. He begins chapter 2 saying these words, Wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings, lay that all aside, and then as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby, if so be, that you've tasted that the Lord is gracious. If, if you've had an experience with God and you know he's good, then you should do these things. You should lay aside these evil, hurtful things and you should, like a baby, desire the sincere, true milk of the word of God because that's how we grow. See, sincere, childlike Christians, 
They lay aside malice. Malice is hostility toward others. You don't have to act it out. It can be just in your spirit. Sincere Christians, they lay aside guile. That's when you have a deceptive motive and you're, you're really manipulating people even though they don't realize it. And then he says, sincere Christians, they lay aside hypocrisy. That's where that guile comes outward and hypocrisy is deceptive actions. You act like you love someone. You act like you care, but really you don't. It's deceptive actions. And then he said, if you're a sincere Christian, if you really have this desire for Jesus to be real in your life, you need to lay aside envies. What are envies? Well, envy and jealousy, we use them as synonyms, but envies here, it is spiteful jealousy. You're jealous of someone and you act out of spite and, and you think out of spite, even worse. You know, you have this kind of attitude like, you know, I, I wish God would take them down a peg or two. It's, it's really pathetic when the only way you can feel better about yourself is if somebody else loses something or gets hurt or suffers a misfortune. That is envies. It's spiteful jealousy. Peter said that has no place in the life of a sincere believer. And then he said, lay aside evil speakings. If you're a sincere Christian, if you've got a sincere, true desire for the Word of God, you lay aside evil speakings. That is gossip. That is backbiting. It's, it's hurtful words that we speak about others. So I would say to you tonight that if you ever find any of those things creeping back into your spirit, you're a child of God. That was covered by the blood and all of that was forgiven from your old life. But if you ever find any of that creeping back into your spirit against anyone in your church family, you lay those things aside, Peter said. He said, cast them away. Get rid of them. Get them far from you. Get them out of your spirit and out of your life. And then Peter says, you know, there's another area in which we must be childlike. Number one, we're childlike in that we forgive and we don't hold uh, bad feelings and hurtful thoughts and, and, and we don't hold harmful actions. We cast them aside. We are as quick as children to turn and forgive and to turn and restore relationship. But then there's this other important area in which we must be childlike. And that is in our a desire for what the King James Version calls the sincere milk of the word. Literally, the word means unadulterated. Nothing added to it, nothing taken from it, no other ingredient, no kind of false doctrine or, or, or worldly philosophy. It's the unadulterated, the sincere milk of the word of God. Because it is this word of God that directs us and sustains us and challenges us. It inspires us and corrects us and encourages us. And most of all, the reason you need a relationship with your Bible, and I'm so thrilled you've tuned in to Bible study tonight. I'm so glad you're participating. But you need more of a relationship with this book than your pastor talking to you or a leader or a teacher or a preacher talking to you. You need a relationship with this word for yourself. You don't have to be a theologian to have a relationship with the Word of God. You don't have to know Hebrew and Greek. You don't have to be a scholar. You don't have to have five degrees. All you need is that sincere hunger like a newborn baby for milk. You have a sincere desire for the milk of the Word. You see, as apostolic people, this Word feeds us. We have a relationship with it. It corrects us. In prayer, we talk to God. But through the word, God talks to us, so it feeds us. And I already said it as we began, but as apostolics, we are not resistant to the word of God. We don't argue with it. We don't dismiss parts of it. We don't say, that doesn't apply to today, or that doesn't apply to me, or I don't think that matters. We're not resistant to the word. We are receptive to God's word. Now, every parent knows that sometimes the reason that children have no appetite is because they've filled up on the wrong things. We just came through Easter. Uh, your kids may have got some Easter treats or candy. And, and so they're not hungry for their carrots and for their peas and for their potatoes because they've eaten chocolate and sugar-coated this. And We know sometimes as parents that when children aren't hungry, they've filled up on the wrong things. That is exactly what has happened today in so many parts of this wide world of what we call Christendom. There is a glut 
of candy-coated, fast-food, non-nutritious preaching and teaching out there. It's kind of like a buffet. People can come to a church, they can pick a pastor, they can pick an online ministry, and they can choose any kind of gospel or doctrine or teaching or preaching that suits them while totally ignoring the plain words of Scripture and the plain teaching of the Word of God. Paul said it this way to his young protege, Timothy. Timothy, preach the Word. Be instant in season, out of season. Timothy, you take this Bible and you be a good pastor. You reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. Timothy, you reprove and rebuke and exhort. You know, two of those out of three, two of those words we perceive as negative. Reprove and rebuke. But Paul said, Timothy, you make sure you tell people when they're doing right and you tell people when they're not doing right. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort and do it with all long-suffering. You do it out of love for people. You do it with patience for people. But Timothy, don't you forget, you make sure you teach doctrine. Today in much of Christendom, Doctrine is looked down on. Doctrine is thought to be some kind of hard line, out of date, outmoded, obsolete kind of teaching. But doctrine is the power of the word of God to us. He said, Timothy, you make sure you give them doctrine. Here's why. For the time is coming, Timothy, when people won't endure sound doctrine. But after their own lusts, whatever their flesh desires, they will heap to themselves teachers. It'll be like a buffet line, Timothy. They'll pick a teacher over here. They'll pick another preacher over here. They'll just combine it and kind of come up with their own version of Christianity. They will heap to themselves teachers. Why? Because they have itching ears. They just want to hear the newest thing, the easiest thing. They want to hear something that relates to where they are instead of letting God pull them to where he is. And Timothy, here's what's going to happen. They shall turn away their ears from truth. They've turned their ears to so many varieties of teachers and preachers and doctrines and teachings. They'll turn their ears away from the truth and they will be turned unto fables. It won't even be real, Timothy. It will look like Christianity. It'll sound like Christianity, but it won't be apostolic Christianity. It'll have about the same amount of power to change somebody's eternity and somebody's life as a fable that you'd tell a child. The prophet Amos in the Old Testament spoke and he said, behold, the days come, saith the Lord God. I will send a famine in the land. It will not be a famine of bread. People won't be starving physically or naturally. It won't be a thirst for water. People won't be dying for lack of natural water. But it'll be this kind of famine. It'll be a famine, a lack, a dearth of hearing the words of the Lord. Amos said there's coming a day when everywhere you look, people will be filling up on all kinds of things that they like or they enjoy but they will be starving to death spiritually because they don't hear the word of the Lord. Now I want to take a quick detour here in our lesson tonight because I think this is very important. It's becoming more and more prevalent in my uh, estimation and in, in my study over the last couple or three years especially. And uh, because it's one of these fables that's floating around, because it's one of these false doctrines that's floating around, we need to at least address it. And here it is. Sometimes today you will hear preachers downplay or disparage the Old Testament. They'll say, well, we live in the New Covenant. We're New Testament Christians. They will talk about the Old Testament as though there's no value to be found there for New Testament believers. It's like these preachers and teachers and so-called Christians, they, they seem to believe that Christians today, we're using a book in which the first two-thirds of the content is obsolete and irrelevant. But that is certainly not the way that Jesus and the apostles felt about the Holy Scripture. Again, Paul writes to Timothy, and he says, Timothy, from a child you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. And then watch what he says. All Scripture, Timothy, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. 
All of Scripture is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. Now here's my question. What Scripture is Paul talking about? Certainly not the New Testament because much of it hasn't even been written yet when he writes these words to Timothy. You see, the apostles preached the gospel using the Old Testament. The, Old, the New Testament didn't exist yet. And as it says in the very last chapter of Acts, Paul expounded, testified, and persuaded people concerning Jesus, quote, both out of the law of Moses and out of the prophets. That's Acts 28, verse 23. Paul used the Old Testament when he preached Jesus and when he taught about Jesus. And what about Jesus himself? Remember his message to those disciples on the road to Emmaus after his resurrection? Here's what the scripture says in Luke 24, 27. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, that's Old Testament, Jesus expounded unto them all in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. None of the New Testament had been written at that point. Jesus revealed himself using the Old Testament. Testament. Far from having no value, Jesus and his apostles used the Old Testament to preach the gospel and the revelation of who Jesus was. As that final chapter of Luke's gospel is coming to a close, you remember this. Jesus appears to all of his disciples, and here's what he says to them in Luke 24, 44. He said, all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Jesus said, as you go, as the church grows, as you preach, as you see miracles, signs, and wonders, as people are saved, here's what you're going to notice, that the Old Testament is being fulfilled as the church moves forward. And then Luke 24, 45, the very next verse, it says, Then opened he their understanding that they might understand the Scriptures. What scriptures? There's only Old Testament at this point. Jesus didn't do away with the Old Testament. He helped his disciples better understand it so they could preach the gospel. Here's what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. The most prolific, the longest, the most complex and complete sermon of Jesus that we have in the Bible. Here's what he said. Don't you think that I am come to destroy the law? Don't you think that? Don't you think that I'm come to destroy the prophets? I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one jot or one tittle. Those are the two smallest characters in the Hebrew language. They're really just little accents that go on letters. Not one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. So even in his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus affirms the authority of what we now call the Old Testament. Far from being destroyed or discarded like so many preachers seem to be saying today, the Old Testament is actually fulfilled in Jesus and fulfilled in the New Testament. I want to show you a little chart. I'll explain it. You won't be able to read it uh, very well from where you are looking on a screen. But one-third, 33% of the verses in the New Testament, 33%, they either quote phrases or they reference concepts from the Old Testament. One-third of the New Testament, 33% of the verses in the New Testament, they're either quoting phrases or they're referencing concepts from the Old Testament. More than two-thirds, 69%, of the verses in the book in First Peter and in the book of Hebrews, more than 69% of the verses in the book we're studying and in the book of Hebrews, they do that. They reference either concepts or they actually make quotation from the Old Testament. And here's this is amazing. The last book in your Bible, the book of Revelation, 150% of the verses in Revelation either reference concepts or they quote phrases from the Old Testament. In other words, there are more Old Testament quotes and references in the book of Revelation than there are verses. So this is amazing. 
what you hear from some of these preachers, especially those that may be online and they're, they're, they're trying to explain away the Old Testament because they have this problem with the laws of God. We don't have a problem with the law of God. It doesn't make any difference whether it's a principle that's eternal from the Old Testament or a principle that's eternal from the New Testament. But you hear them say, well, we're New Testament Christians. We don't pay attention to the Old Testament. The gospel started in the New Testament. We don't have to pay attention to anything before that. Jesus and the apostles didn't see it that way. And the New Testament itself doesn't see it that way. I love this little statement. I came across it when I was a teenager. And it talks about the New and the Old Testament. It's actually quite brilliant. The New is in the Old contained. The Old is in the New explained. The New is in the Old concealed. The Old is in the New revealed. That's how the Testaments work. The Old Testament and the New Testament. The the New Testament actually was contained in the Old Testament. But that Old Testament, it's explained in the New Testament. The New Testament is actually concealed. There's types and shadows and it's hidden away in the Old Testament. But that Old Testament is revealed in the New Testament. What a powerful thing. Now, why is that so important to understand? And why did we take that little detour? Here's why. Because if Jesus... And if the early church used the Old Testament to preach and teach, then we should as well. When Peter says, desire the sincere milk of the word, he's not referring only to a few epistles, a few letters that are being handed around. He's not just referring to the gospels because some of the gospels haven't even been written yet. No, Peter is referring to all the counsel of God, the Old Testament and the New Testament. Why is this so important to understand? Why did we take this detour tonight? Because I've heard preachers say, you can't claim that promise. That's written in the Old Testament. I fundamentally, categorically disagree with them. Isaiah said in 53 and 5, and with his stripes we are healed. Now, some preachers would tell you, oh, that doesn't apply to us today. It's from the Old Testament. But Peter's going to tell us in this very chapter, in verse 24, by whose stripes you were healed. The only difference is that Peter puts it in the past tense because Calvary has already happened. So whether you're standing on the promises of God from the Old Testament or you're standing on the promises of God from the New Testament, you can be healed, you can be delivered, you can be saved because we thank God for the revelation that is contained in the whole Bible. Now the world, they'll call you childish for believing in the word of God, but don't you pay any attention to the world. Jesus told us to be childlike in our faith and Peter goes even further and says, be like newborn babies in our hunger for the word of the Lord. Because after all, that is how, this is how we grow in our relationship with God. He continues in verse 4 and he says, to whom coming? We're coming to Jesus as unto a living stone. He's disallowed indeed of men, disregarded, but he's chosen of God and precious And you also, you in the church, you believers, you as lively stones, now because of what Jesus did, you are built up a spiritual house. I want you to remember that. You're a holy priesthood. Remember that. You offer up spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Wherefore also, it is contained in the scripture. He quotes the Old Testament. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. He will not be ashamed. He will not be embarrassed. He will not be confused or confounded because this Jesus we serve is such an awesome Savior. It is the Word of God that points us to Jesus, and it is also the Word of God that points us 
to his church. The very first time Jesus mentioned his church, he compared it to a building. Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Matthew 16, 18. Peter was the one who received the revelation that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Literally, he's saying, you're God in a body. You are the body of God. That's Matthew 16, 16. And that revelation of who Jesus is, that revelation, not a man, not a movement, not a denomination, not a religion, but that revelation of who Jesus is, that is the rock that the church is built upon. And that's why Peter says, we are all stones in God's building. And Jesus is the chief cornerstone of the church And because Jesus is a living stone, he rose from the dead, now we can be lively stones in this building called the church. Verse 7, he says, Unto you therefore which believe, Jesus is so precious, but unto them which be disobedient, this stone that the builders disallowed, they disregarded it, they disrespected, but that same stone today, is made the head of the corner. And he's also a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word being disobedient. When you disobey the word of God, you're going to trip over Jesus. When you don't pay attention to the Bible, you're going to stumble at the doctrines of the church. Whereunto also they were appointed. God knew that they would do this. God knew they'd have these attitudes. And so to us, he's precious. But to the world, they stumble over Jesus. They trip over him. They stumble over the word of God and they trip over it. Peter's quoting here from a beautiful passage in Psalm 118. It says this, The stone which the builders refused is become the headstone of the corner. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. And then the psalmist who happens to be Ezra, he can't help himself. He said, this is the day which the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Now we love to quote that when we open up service on Sunday morning. This is the day which the Lord hath made. But there's a reference, a historical account called Historia Scholastica. And it gives us the background of that beautiful passage. The stone that the builders refused is become the headstone of the corner. It's the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. And this is the day that the Lord hath made. And we will rejoice in it. Historia Scholastica says that that passage is actually describing something that happened in the construction of the temple in the Old Testament when they returned from captivity. There was a literal cornerstone. A cornerstone then wasn't something that sits ornamentally at the bottom of a foundation. A cornerstone then, when the building was put together, that final great grand arch, the biggest arch in the building, there would be a strangely shaped stone at the top and the the stones on the sides of the arch would go up and they would lock into place by butting up against that cornerstone. That was a cornerstone as they built buildings. And then all the other stones could be laid up against that secure arch. And really what was holding it all together with the laws of physics was that cornerstone at the top of the arch. And so Historia Scholastica, this reference, it tells us that there was actually a cornerstone. It was the big one. It was the main one. And they had carved it so carefully and shaped it painstakingly. And then somehow on that project, on that building site, they set it aside for a few days that became a few weeks and maybe a few months. And uh, they had discarded it. The chief cornerstone, the main stone of the main arch of the building when they were building the temple, it got discarded. It got set aside. And then they forgot about it. It became covered with dirt and debris and the builders had refused it and they'd set it in a corner and and it was just being covered up with junk. But then when they went looking for the chief cornerstone, I thought we cut that. I thought we had that. Didn't you work on that? And 
They went looking for it. They found it refused. They found it rejected. They found it sitting under a pile of debris and trash and junk. But when they cleaned it off, they found that that stone that they had set aside was perfectly fit for the most honorable place in the entire temple that was being built, coupling the sides of the main arch together. That astonished those builders. And Ezra was so moved, he was the one that was writing this particular psalm. He also wrote a book in the Old Testament part of your Bible. Ezra was so moved that he actually wrote this passage. And now as we understand what the background was, I'd like you to read it again, but I'd like you not to just think about a discarded piece of rock, a discarded beautiful stone that was set aside on a construction site. You think about that, but you also think about your Savior because that's what Ezra was prophesying. The stone which the builders refused. Thank you, Jesus. Is become the headstone of the corner. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Ezra looks at that great day when they found that great stone but he's prophesying there's another day. It's the day when the chief cornerstone of the church came out of the grave. And because he was a living stone, we can now be lively stones. And Ezra's prophesying here. And it's why we love this verse. We don't even maybe understand the background, but it just kind of hooks on with our spirit. This is the day which the Lord hath made and we will rejoice and be glad in it. The reason we're so happy when we get a chance to get to church and fellowship together the reason we're so glad about it the reason we always say this is the day which the Lord hath made is because Jesus is the chief cornerstone of this whole arrangement called the New Testament church all our hope all our trust all our faith is in him but I want to say to you just when you come to church on a Sunday, that's not the only day the Lord has made. If you're a child of God, he's made every day of your life. It is the day that the Lord has made. And you can rejoice and you can be glad in that day because you are built on this chief cornerstone. Jesus is the chief cornerstone of our lives and of the church. A corner, you know this. It's a place where two things meet. You say, that's a corner of the wall in my living room. That's where one wall meets another. Well, in Jesus, when he died, was buried, and rose again, he became the chief cornerstone. And in him, many things met. Jews and Gentiles came together. Bond and free. Law and grace came together. Heaven and earth. Mercy and truth. Righteousness and peace. All of those things came together on that day. Psalm 85 verse 10 even says, Mercy and truth are met together and righteousness and peace have kissed each other. It was so powerful when Jesus won the battle and paid the price for our salvation. And in Hebrew, Jesus isn't just the cornerstone. He's the head of the corner. Head is rosh in Hebrew. It means the head, the chief, the leader, the prince, the captain. It's the point, the top, the first rank, the best, the highest, the supreme, the summit, the sum, the beginning, the commencement, the foremost, the principal source, the zenith, the total, the most excellent. He is the most excellent head cornerstone. There are many English translations of the scripture and we use the King James Version most because it's the most accurate word-for-word -word English translation we have. But the Moffat translation is actually very nice here in verse 22 of Psalm 118. It says, The stone the builders cast aside is now the building's strength and pride. This Jesus that was so rejected by the world and we just celebrated it on Good Friday and Easter Sunday. This Jesus that was so rejected by the world, he is not rejected by us. He is the chief cornerstone of the church, and he is the chief cornerstone of our lives. Now you see what Peter's alluding to here is that the Jews rejected the Messiah, and they stumbled and tripped and fell headlong over this rock of revelation. Paul picked that theme up in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He said, the Jews require a sign and the Greeks seek after wisdom. 
but not us. We preach Christ crucified. We know that under the Jews, he's a stumbling block. We get it. Under the Greeks, he's just foolishness. But let me set the record straight on how it is in the church. But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, he's not rejected. He is Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Paul later wrote in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 20, he said, we, the church, we are built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets and Jesus Christ himself is the chief cornerstone of the church. It was Peter that got that revelation that day in Matthew 16, looking at Jesus when he said, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. You are God literally in a body of flesh. And the church is built on this rock of revelation. And that's where Peter goes next in verse 9. He said, but you, apostolic Christian, you are a chosen generation. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. Yes, you're a peculiar people. The world mocks you and maligns you and misunderstands you. You're a peculiar people. Why? That you should show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. I know you're just watching online tonight. I know you're not physically here with me in this building tonight. But I hope you can feel what I feel. There is such a power when we think about how Jesus called some of us out of the darkness of alcoholism and some of us out of the darkness of drug addiction and some of us out of the darkness of pride and some of us out of the darkness of false religion and some of us out of the darkness of perversion and he called us into this marvelous light and he said in time past you were not a people but now today right now you are the people of God in the past, you had not obtained mercy. But now, today, right now, you have obtained mercy. You see, Israel in the Old Testament, they had a priesthood. But this church in the New Testament, the church is a priesthood. Every believer is a priest unto God. Remember that in verse 5, Peter said to us, we offer up spiritual sacrifices. And those spiritual sacrifices, brothers and sisters, they include many things. Romans 12.1 says that we offer up the spiritual sacrifice of our bodies. Hebrews 13.15 says we offer up the spiritual sacrifice of our praise to God. Hebrews 13.16 says we offer up the sacrifice of our good works to God. Philippians 4.18 describes how New Testament believers offered up the spiritual sacrifice of giving. And then Romans 15 verse 16 says that the souls we win to God, we present them to him as a spiritual sacrifice. Now as priests unto God, this is what was so important. This is what marked a priest in the Old Testament. As priests... We must maintain our separation from the world in order for our spiritual sacrifices to be accepted by God. You've got to be a separate and a holy people or God doesn't accept your sacrifices. It doesn't matter how much giving and praising you do. It doesn't matter how many good works you do or how many souls you win to your doctrine or your religion or your opinion. If you're not living a separated holy life, those sacrifices aren't accepted by a holy God. You're not offering up spiritual sacrifices. Now, just in case you misunderstand me, I want to say this very clearly. When we talk about separation from the world, separation is not isolation. Because there's no influence if we are isolated. Separation unto God is not isolating yourself from the world. Because you lose all influence. Separation is this. Separation is contact without contamination. We are in the world, but not of the world. In verse 11, Peter continues on, and we're going to end with this paragraph tonight. I'm so honored and thrilled to be able to teach you the word of God tonight. In verse 11, he said, Now because of all of this, 
because we have this powerful, wonderful Savior, and because we have this beautiful covenant, and because we're priests offering up spiritual sacrifices, and because we have all of these privileges and perks from living for God, and because He's called us to be a chosen generation and a royal priesthood and a holy nation and even a peculiar people. Because of all of that, here's what Peter says. Dearly beloved, I beseech you. I beg you. In the strongest possible terms, I beg you. You're strangers. You're pilgrims. You're scattered in this world. Some of you, your family doesn't serve God. Most of you, your neighbors don't serve God. All of us, we have work colleagues and associates that they don't serve God. We're strangers and pilgrims and sometimes we feel scattered just like these people felt scattered. He said, but I beg you, even in those times when you feel so all alone, even in those times when you struggle and your journey is not easy and putting one foot in front of another, spiritually speaking, is, is difficult some days. He said, but I beg you, abstain, stay away. Run from fleshly lusts. Stay away from the things of the world. Stay away from the culture that's so twisted and evil and perverted and sensual and overtly sexual. and It's always in our face. Abstain from fleshly lusts. Why? Because they don't just war against your body. They war against your soul. They can separate you from God. They can hurt your relationship with Jesus. So run from them. Stay away from them. Abstain from them. Put distance between you and them. And then he says this, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. So let's take this verse and this passage in two sections. The separation that is required by our God. That is why Peter begs these scattered strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts. Because those lusts can damage your very soul. What you do with your body, what you think about in your mind, the activities that you involve yourself in, the things you look at on the internet, the things you read, the movies and the media you watch, they can have eternal consequences. You think it's just a movie. It's just a website. It's just hanging out with certain people. But what you do with your body can have eternal consequences for your soul. So Peter admonishes us in the strongest possible terms. He said, live a virtuous life lifestyle, a holy lifestyle. He says, having your conversation honest. Conversation today means talking, but conversation 400 years ago when the King James version of the English Bible was translated, it meant all the different ways in which we converse or communicate or contact with the world around us. He said, have your lifestyle honest, virtuous, transparent before God and others. Have a lifestyle that is honest, open, transparent before the world. If nobody knows that you're an apostolic Christian, you're not doing this right. There should be something different about you. Something that is marked. Something so they look at you in a way similar to, they looked, to the way they looked at Jesus. He was refused and rejected, maligned, misunderstood. Somewhere there should be a little bit of that in your life. Not because you're doing something wrong, but because you're doing something right. And then he says this. Have that conversation, that lifestyle. Make it honest and open and transparent among the Gentiles. This is so powerful, this next part. That whereas right now they speak against you as evildoers, they make fun of your faith and they mock you and they misunderstand and they malign you. And it's just terrible some of the things that are said to you and said about you in your family, in your workplace, among people maybe that go to other churches that they don't like that you're an apostolic. <laughs> Peter says, right now they may mock your faith. Right now they may speak against you and call you evildoers. 
You're in a cult. You believe a false doctrine. You're a legalist. You're a Pharisee. But he says then, he turns it. He said, right now they speak against you as evildoers. But you live that honest, open, transparent life. You just keep living as an apostolic. And they may, by your good works, which they shall behold. So good works to Peter are something that people can see. Not something in the heart. Not something that's in your spirit. No, it's something about your lifestyle that people can see. He said, they're going to behold them, your good works. And they will glorify God in the day of visitation. Right now, they may mock you. But I believe God is going to allow every person on this planet a day of visitation in their life. It could be that right now, during the pandemic that we're under, the restrictions that we're operating under, that could be a time of visitation for many people. God will allow every person, every human being, to have a day of visitation in their life. And in that season of their life, God's Spirit will move on their heart through some circumstance, some tragedy, some hurt, some pain, some loss. God will move on them because their heart will suddenly be open to Him for some strange reason. And Peter says, on that day, in that season of good works, in that season of visitation rather, if the good works that they've observed in your life if the holy lifestyle they've watched you live, if that lifestyle, if your good works match your good words, now if you're telling them about Jesus, but you're cheating on your taxes and, and you're nasty in your interactions, and then it doesn't match up. But on that day in that season of visitation, if the good works they've observed in your life match up with the good words of the gospel you've spoken to them, Peter says, they're going to come looking for you, and they're going to come looking for God. Let me speak a word over everybody that has a backslider that you love in your family or in your life or among your friends. Let me speak to everybody that has a child or a sibling or a parent that they're lost and far from God. Don't you argue with them. That doesn't help anything. Don't you chastise them and shame them and guilt them and nag them. That just pushes them further away. What do I do, pastor? Here's what you do. You keep living your life. You love them, but you love God more. You be kind to them, but you keep the commandments of God. And you just keep living that holy, separated, godly life in front of them. Right now, they may mock you. Right now, they may hate you. Right now, they may misunderstand and, and they may even speak evil things and call you an evildoer. You're a legalist. You're a Pharisee. They could do all of that. But Peter said, there's coming a day of visitation in their life. And on that day of visitation, when everything falls apart, they're not going to come looking for somebody that's got the same addiction that they've got, that's struggling with the same perversion that they've got. No, on that day, whenever that season is in their life, they're going to come looking for you because you were the person who loved God and loved them. You were the person your good works matched your good words. And they're going to come looking for you. And they're going to come looking for God. And Peter said, there's coming a day when that person that's far from God, they're going to glorify God. They're going to turn to Jesus in the day of their visitation. That's a powerful, powerful word. I'm so grateful to be able to teach you tonight. And uh, I, I do want to pray with you before we go our separate ways. I know that this was so powerful in my spirit as I was studying it and preparing to teach you tonight. And uh, I pray that God has spoken deeply to you. But, but don't just disconnect right now. Let's connect in prayer right now. And uh, if you're somewhere where you can, if you'd even just lift up your voice and pray out loud with your voice, God wants to do something powerful across our church family right now, wherever we're gathered. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus... I thank you that these ancient words, 2,000 years old nearly, from the man who preached on the day of Pentecost, from the man who saw that revelation of who you are, that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are God in a body of flesh. Jesus, you are Almighty God. He saw that. But this is also the man who denied you. He cursed. He walked away. He made a terrible mistake. 
You loved Peter and you restored him. Jesus, Peter was just a normal guy like us, but he had a powerful revelation of who you are. And he had a personal relationship with you as Savior and Lord. Jesus, we couldn't ask for anything better or anything more or anything greater than that. And Lord God, I pray for my brothers and sisters that are watching tonight. I believe you've spoken to us. We are a holy and separated people, a priesthood. We offer up spiritual sacrifices our lives, our, our bodies, our good works, our giving, our praise, we offer it up to you. We live to bless your name. We live to glorify you. We live to serve you, Jesus. What a privilege and what an honor that is. And through the words of Peter, your servant tonight, I believe you've given hope to somebody. During this time of social isolation, you've put us all in our secret place. And God, somebody, you're speaking to them right now to renew their prayer focus on that person in their life that's far from you, that seems so antagonistic to truth, that seems like they've spurned holiness and doctrine and they've walked away and maybe worst of all, they're now in some kind of other religion and they're in some kind of other version of Christianity and they don't believe so much of your word is even applicable to them. And they feel smug and they feel safe and they feel okay. But God, in the hearts of your people, there's this aching void. My boy's not okay. My girl's not okay. My family member's not okay. Jesus, the answer is for us to continue to pray and just continue to live as a holy and separated people before you. Because when that season of visitation comes, they're not going to look for somebody that's bound like they are. They're going to look for something different. And your church is the answer. God, I pray that this worldwide viral pandemic that has stricken so many hundreds and thousands and millions of hearts with fear, I pray you would use it for this purpose, that you would send people looking for truth. Because right now, it is a day of visitation when you're working on their hearts. And God, when they come looking, let us be the people that are living it. Let us be the people whose good works and good words match up. Let us be a people who can be used by you for the salvation of many. I pray it in Jesus' name over the brothers and sisters that I love and over our church family that has been so blessed by your goodness and your presence. Go with us now, Jesus, and use us for your glory during these troublesome times. We will forever give you all thanks and all the praise, because this is the day that our Lord has made, and we rejoice, and we are glad in it, and we rejoice, and we are glad in you. Thank you, Jesus. I pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you for being with us tonight and being part of Midweek Bible Study. God bless you.